The message I am about to read this morning is from the hand of Reverend Peter Holtzfluer, minister of the Spring Creek Canadian Reformed Church in Tintern, Ontario. This is the 12th sermon in a 13-sermon series on the first three chapters of Genesis, and you will likely remember several of the first 11 read by Brother Van Boslin over the last few years. After the reading of the sermon, we will sing from Psalm 127, the first three stanzas. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last time we heard about the enmity which the Lord placed between the woman and the serpent, between the followers of God and the followers of Satan. That ongoing struggle, though ultimately a blessing because it keeps us away from joining with the devil, it will not be easy. The serpent will bite the heel of God's people and cause considerable anguish and suffering. And while our great encouragement is God's promise to crush the head of Satan by the seed of the woman, Yet so long as this present life continues, we can and must expect to be attacked by the devil. Every day we still need to pray, deliver us from the evil one. And yet this enmity is not the only result of Adam's sin. We have not just gained an enemy in the devil, but all of God's good creation has turned against us. Where once there was blessing, now there is curse, and everything around us, also everything within us, lies under God's judgment for sin. I proclaim to you this word of the Lord. The Lord imposes the consequences of man's sin. And we will see three points. The gloom, the grace, and the gratitude. After the Lord curses the serpent, he then turns to the woman and the man. Very clearly, the Lord here is acting as judge. He condemns the serpent, and then he moves on to pronounce sentence over the woman and the man. And notice that he does that to each one separately. We might have expected God to deal with the man and the woman as one unit since they are husband and wife. After all, the Lord had earlier brought them together and declared them to be one flesh, and yet he treats them separately. Each one has his own responsibility before the Lord and must personally answer to God for his own actions. And that's something for us to remember, brothers and sisters. When it comes time for judgment day, then there is no hiding behind the skirts of our wife or behind the shoulders of our husband. We, will each, we each will give an account to the Lord. Sometimes a spouse quietly follows her husband or his wife into sin saying nothing. No one likes to upset the apple cart, right? He or she stays in the background and allows sin to carry on in the home because they don't want to rock the boat. But brothers and sisters, if you don't rock the boat now, your boat will be sunk in the storm of God's wrath on the last day. Loving your husband or wife never means enabling him or her to live in sin, but it means seeking help to put a stop to that sin. The Lord's word to Adam's wife is not very long, but it sure is hauntingly powerful, isn't it? Every woman here can relate to this, especially every wife and mother. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Any sister here that's given birth can give her personal testimony that God's judgment is still very much in effect. Even with all the medical advances of today, childbirth remains painful and difficult. We're still dealing with the consequences of our sin in Adam. Perhaps it's good to clear up any misconception about sin, forgiveness, and consequences. We're fond of saying forgive and forget. It means that when you forgive someone their sin, you don't bring it up anymore, and you don't talk about it anymore. And to a large extent, there is truth in that. Past sins that have been forgiven should not be brought up quickly or easily. 
But the words of our text showing that, show that being forgiven doesn't necessarily take away the consequences of our sin. As we saw last time, by not coming in condemnation, the Lord had shown great mercy to the man and to his wife. He had cursed the serpent and given the promise of deliverance through the seed of the woman, God's very own son. He had brought forgiveness to Adam in the promise, and yet the Lord does not take away all consequences of their sin. Everything does not instantly turn back to the way it was before. When we turn to him in sincere repentance and faith, the Lord forgives us our guilt, but the results of our sin are not always, not even usually, erased in our lives. And that makes us personally ever conscious of our sin. We remember it like it was yesterday. The Lord no longer holds us guilty for that sin. And we often must learn to forgive ourselves too. But the truth is we often suffer the consequences of our own foolish actions. Now the same is true for others who sin. We must be considerate and bear in mind those consequences and their struggle against sin. For example, when someone repents from the sin of drunkenness, then we give him our support. We help him reintegrate into the church. We help strengthen his faith through prayer and scripture reading. But throughout it all, we, we remain acutely aware of his sin. You don't then throw a party and put out all kinds of booze, do you? You won't offer him a beer, will you? Or if someone is genuinely sorry for his sexual sin, then we must assist him and gently restore him in the body of Christ but we must never leave him alone in a vulnerable situation. We want to lead him out of sin, not into it, right? Being forgiven our sin does not mean we no longer have a weakness in that area, but it does mean that we have the strength of the Holy Spirit to overcome the temptation. And God's people must help each other avoid, flee, and resist those sins. Forgiving people their sin does not mean sweeping it under the carpet, but it means not counting it against them anymore and helping them to get out of it. Instead of forgive and forget, we are called to forgive and facilitate the rehabilitation of our brother or sister. Now, the first consequence of woman's sin is well known, pain and childbearing, and that certainly means the increase in physical pain, but it also includes the emotional pain of the heart, for the word can also be translated as sorrow. I will greatly increase your sorrow in childbearing. And then it refers not only to the time of pregnancy and delivery, though that is certainly included, but the Hebrew word for childbearing also includes the conception of that child. So the punishment of the woman affects the entire process of the begetting of children. From first to last, the process of bearing children is filled with grief, sorrow, and pain. And that's just if life follows its normal course. For some, there is under this general judgment the added sorrow of not receiving any children or receiving a lesser number than hoped for. The sorrow of failed conception is not unknown among us, and how many tears haven't been shed over that loss? You know, it's remarkable that in the book of Genesis we find so many women struggling with the sorrow of infertility. Think of Sarah, who was barren for so long. Think of Rebecca, for whom Isaac had to specially pray. Think of Rachel, who was so filled with sorrow and grief that she cried out to Jacob, Give me children, or I will die. Genesis 30, verse 1. There are also those who die in childbirth, to be sure, but the greater sorrow was to have no children at all. The woman lives with the consequences of her sin, and it is miserable. The other consequence is no better in verse 16. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, there's been a lot of discussion over the meaning of this verse. Is this the woman's sexual desire for her husband? As if to say, though the woman will know much grief and childbearing, 
yet she will still desire sexual union with her husband. But if that is the case, it's hard to see how that is a form of punishment for either the woman or the man. Isn't that what they were created for in the beginning? A better interpretation is to see this not as a sexual desire, but rather as a desire to rule over her husband, for then it makes more sense with the next phrase, and he will rule over you. The woman will, contrary to the way she was created, want to dominate her husband, but the husband will instead dominate her. Look with me at Genesis 4 verse 7. Here we have an example of a more clear text helping us understand a less clear text for the same two verbs are used here. The Lord says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. It desires to have you, that is to rule over you, but you must rule over it. In the same way, the wife will want to rule over her husband, but he will rule over her. It's a distortion of the creation relationship between husband and wife. Eve had already once taken Adam's role as head, and she would continually want to have that position again. But in the end, her husband would rule over her. That's a forceful word, rule. Gone is the pledge to love and to cherish, and in its place is the judgment to rule and to dominate. That glorious and harmonious fellowship of husband and helper is twisted and perverted by our sin. From this point forward, there would ever be an inner tension between husband and wife, a clash in the most personal relationship we know. Many people consider these words only as they apply to the woman, as if this is only her burden to bear. But let's not forget that Adam is at the same time affected here. A lot of people think of Adam's ruling over his wife as simply God's punishment over the woman, but did you know it is equally punishment over the man? Man was created as head over his wife, but not to dominate her, not to rule her against her own will. The picture in Genesis 3 is master and slave, but it was not so from the beginning. Woman was created as helper, not servant. And when Paul commands the husband who has been redeemed in Christ, then he doesn't say rule her, but he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. The command to wives is to submit, but the command to husbands is to love and guide, not lord it over their wives. Which Christian husband finds any pleasure in keeping his wife subservient? Ruling your wife with an iron fist is a matter of God's punishment, but if you've been freed from that punishment, won't you behave your wife with the utterly selfless and sacrificial love of Jesus? Then your authority will not hurt and crush but it will heal and build up. These are the consequences of sin for the woman. A life filled with pain and sorrow around her central role as helper for her husband. There will be disharmony in her most intimate relationship. The special and unique task of the woman in childbearing is made terribly burdensome and her marriage is made difficult. That's the powerful effect of sin. That's something that women right around the world live with each and every day. And the man's punishment is equally filled with gloom. Just as woman's special calling is put under the curse, so is also the man's special calling. The Lord says in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Cursed is the ground because of you. Man's calling was specifically to till that ground, to cultivate the soil, and thereby have dominion over the earth and all the animals. But now that ground will in no way cooperate. Just as the woman will have pain in bearing children, 
So the man will have pain in scratching out a living from the earth. Instead of the blessing of plentiful crops, the man will have to contend with thorns and thistles. Instead of a pleasant tilling of arable soil, it will be backbreaking work by the sweat of the brow. And is that still not the case today, brothers and sisters? It is true that we have many technological advances. Tractors, implements, and heavy machinery do most of our slugging. Computers, medical advances, and household appliances do much to ease the burden of this curse. But even with all that, you still have to work hard, don't you? And the earth doesn't easily give of its fruits, does it? Farmers still have to spray for bugs and weeds each season. If the weather is off even a little at the wrong time, the whole season can be ruined. Which farmer will say it's an easy business? But other jobs are the same. If you work in manufacturing, then the work is tiring and difficult. And that's when things go well. It doesn't take much for things to break down or for workers to make mistakes. And those in management positions dealing with employees and guiding the business along, will any of you say your job is no sweat? There's the constant pressure of drumming up more work, the solving of employee problems, the worry of having enough funds to write out paychecks, the chasing down of unpaid bills. Nothing comes easy in this life. Sin has its tentacles spread out into every facet of life, of the life of man, just as it does into the life of the woman, until it brings us right back to the very soil from which we were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Every day the obituaries in the newspaper are filled with people returning to dust. Seniors, middle-aged, women, children, even babies. Not one day goes by without death claiming another person. We're born in pain, we live in pain, and mostly we die in pain too. It's enough to leave a person utterly depressed. This life on its own is surely miserable and gloomy until we see the way out in the light of God's grace. For as oppressive and gloomy as these judgments are, they are actually much lighter than we deserve, aren't they? For notice now that these are not the automatic consequences of our sin, but something imposed by the Lord. We find this throughout our text in the Lord's response. Verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. I put this punishment upon you. And again to Adam, he says, cursed is the ground. The Lord puts that curse there. It is not the case that the Lord approaches Adam and Eve and says to them, these are the automatic consequences of your sin. This is the punishment I threatened you with beforehand, the punishment you knew of in advance. Imagine for a moment that the Lord had done that. He had every right to do so. The punishment he had threatened was simply this, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. The automatic punishment for Adam and his wife was not increased pain in childbearing or in making a living, but it was death, plain and simple. And yet that punishment is not imposed, at least not fully. We are not used to seeing our burdens in that way. But when we stand back and we analyze what's going on here, then we must see that the Lord gives to man much less than he really deserves. Notice in verse 14 how God directly curses the serpent, but nowhere does he directly curse the man or the woman, though that is exactly what they deserved. The ground is cursed because of the man, and a woman's own body will betray her with pain and sorrow, but no curse falls on the head of either one. And in that, brothers and sisters, there is overwhelming grace. They should have been terminated instantly. They should have been wiped off the face of the earth. The human race should have been destroyed in the wrath of God, but they are spared. They are left standing. They are even promised redemption in the crushing of Satan, and they are brought back into fellowship with their God. 
Can you fathom this love of the Lord, brothers and sisters? I can't. The punishment is heavy, and yet despite it, salvation will come. Instead of death, the very judgment includes the promise of life. With pain, you will give birth to children. We tend to focus on the pain and the sorrow and feel gloomy about it. And it is miserable, to be sure. But do you also see the miracle here that children will, in fact, be born to Adam and his wife? The womb should have been closed. The heart should have stopped. The lungs should have collapsed. But the Lord says, giving birth will cause you much pain, but you will give birth. There is much hope in this judgment, much optimism. For instead of eternal death for all humanity, life will spring forth. And the same happens with the man. The earth will give him all kinds of grief as he toils over it, but it will produce food for him. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food, but at least you will eat your food. You can look at God's judgment over man as mild by comparison to what we really deserved. On the one hand, God's punishment makes us experience the bitter brokenness of life in all that we are and do. Every day we feel the weight of what we have done in Adam, the burden of our transgression, and yet through the midst of it, life does go on. The seed of the woman will arise, and indeed has arisen in Jesus Christ, to crush the head of the serpent. In him we now begin to feel the reversal of that judgment. We can't go into it in detail right now, but did you notice how Paul shows us the freedom from the curse which we have in Christ? The marriage relationship cleansed by his blood and renewed in his spirit is no longer one of hostility and tension, but one of willing submission and sacrificial love. The parent-child relationship in Christ is no longer one where children disrespect their parents and fathers exasperate their children, but it is one of respect and loving discipline. The employer-employee relationship as Christians is not filled with strife, but is filled with care, concern, and heartfelt service. Christ has taken our curse and begins to remove also the consequences of our sin. Everyday life is different in Christ. And when you think about it a little further, doesn't God's judgment also have the gracious effect that it drives us into the arms of our Savior? Imagine that though we were spiritually dead and condemned to eternal hell, that life was smooth and easy. Imagine if, though we had no peace with God, all things in this life went along swimmingly with no pain or sorrow. How fast would we seek out Christ our Savior? We're already slow as it is. But when we experience the effects of our sin, when the brokenness of life mounts upon us, when the cycle of death and decay hits us square in the face, we go to the only source of help there is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's also why we read Romans chapter 5. Suffering as a child of God brings about a positive effect in verse 3. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not put us to shame. It is even so that we can rejoice in our suffering because God uses them to bring us closer to himself. Is that not a blessing for which we can be thankful? We once cut ourselves off from God altogether, but now, through the instrument of suffering, the Lord draws us more and more back to himself. Should we not be filled with gratitude even in the midst of our sorrow? Adam saw it that way. For the first time since God revealed his grace and mercy in cursing the snake, and in easing up on man's rightful punishment, we read of Adam's reaction in verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. It doesn't sound like much at first. 
We're used to calling her Eve, and maybe we think nothing of this little verse, but it shows that Adam was listening to the Lord and understood the mercy granted him. Adam and Eve had brought upon themselves death by their actions, but the Lord had intervened to promise them life. Eve had no right to give birth, no right to produce offspring for which she had died before the Lord, but Adam understood and believed God's promise. She would live. A savior would come out of her line. She would not give birth to a race destined only for eternal death, but she would be mother of all the living. From Adam and Eve would come a people who would truly be alive in the Lord, who would know of eternal life through the blood of Christ Jesus. Before he had called her woman in response to God's gift of a wife, and now he calls her Eve in response to God's gift of life. Eternal life for him and all his descendants who believe in her great seed. Adam entered a state of gloom and suffering like he had never known, and yet he entered it in faith. He entered it in thankful hope. She shall be called Eve. Let's you and I embark on life in that same hope. No, a stronger hope. Because in that long line of Eve's descendants, a child did come who was given another name. The angel said, He shall be called Jesus, for he will save the people from their sins. Matthew 1, verse 21. That seed has saved you from sin's guilt and its consequences in your childbearing, in your marriage, in your work, wherever there's a thorn or thistle growing. In this life, the curse has been shattered and one day it will disappear altogether. Let his blood and spirit wash you clean and give you a new start with new life from above. Amen.